Um, welcome to this uh, Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. I'm Rob Lyons. I'm the convener of the Economy Forum and I'll be chairing this discussion. And I'm absolutely delighted to have Matt Ridley with us tonight to discuss his new book, How Innovation Works. The process of innovation is what has enabled humanity to live in ever greater material comfort, how we escaped the hand-to-mouth existence of other animals and came to have control over our destiny and all the civilization and everything that is, is actually poorly understood in many ways. And I think what Matt's book does really well is provide a lot of very important ideas about that process, but it does so in an eminently readable way. And I would warmly recommend it to everyone. Um, and at a time of sluggish, sluggish economic growth, and particularly as we face an economic crisis to match the health crisis caused by COVID-19, understanding the barriers to innovation seems to be even more crucial than ever. So before I just introduce uh, Matt, I have a favour to ask. The Academy of Ideas has been running events throughout the coronavirus crisis and we've not furloughed any of our staff. We believe it's vital to talk about the world and how we should move forward, whether it's the economy, the NHS or Black Lives Matter and much more. All of these Zoom events have been free of charge, so if you would like to help us keep promoting intelligent public debate, please consider giving us a donation at academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Now, to our speaker. I'm sure Matt Ridley is a very familiar name to all of you as a journalist, commentator and author. His books have sold over a million copies. Originally focused on science, Matt has in recent years broadened his writing to look at wider issues. I would particularly recommend The Rational Optimist and How Innovation Works is another fine work that emphasises the capacity of human beings to understand and shape our world. Do visit Matt's website, which is mattridley.co.uk, for all his articles and a much fuller biography. So, Matt will introduce his ideas for 15 minutes or so, and then I'll turn to you for all your comments and questions. So I'm now going to highlight Matt. Oh, the floor is yours, Matt. Great. Thank you, Rob, very much indeed. That's extremely kind of you to have me on, on tonight. Uh, and uh, it's great to get to speak to the um, Academy of Ideas. I, I've had some very good invitations over the years, and I've not always managed to, to accept them from Claire Fox, Ella Whelan, and other people. So it's really, really nice to be able to speak to, to some of you uh, tonight. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled about publishing this book, uh, but I should just begin by saying the book was published in the UK on the 25th of June. It was originally scheduled to be published uh, in um, May, and then the coronavirus pandemic happened, and it was just in time the publisher decided that it would be great to be able to delay it so that we got out of lockdown. Um, and that in and I said, well, if we're going to do that, I'm going to write an afterword about um, coronavirus. The American publishers weren't able to do that. So the Americans got the book without the afterword. Brits get a free extra chapter at the end about how innovation is the key to solving this pandemic. And one other thing I should add is that two days before the book was due to be published in June here, I suffered a unexpected family bereavement and I canceled all other events I was doing for a couple of weeks. And this is almost the first time I'm back um, speaking about the book. So, um, uh, I, I'm a little rusty on it, um, having taken a break. So the, I've written about innovation in other books. I think it's the most important thing that happens uh, in 
history bar none it's what it's what explains all the trends that happen in the world it's what explains prosperity but it also what explains all the other cultural trends it explains how social media has gone crazy and things like that innovation is at the heart of all this and yet as rob said it's a surprisingly mysterious process nobody really understands why it happens to us or to rabbits uh, sorry why it happens to, happens to us and not to rabbits or rocks um you know what what is it about human society that enables us to suddenly have new devices new uh, habits new technologies new um uh, social patterns um uh, and why is it accelerated so much in the last couple of centuries? Why did we go for, with very, very slow innovation for thousands of years, and then suddenly, since the Industrial Revolution, we've seen a great um, uh, shockwave of, of continuous innovation? And why does it go quicker in some parts of the world than in others? Why does it go quicker in some times than in others, in some sectors than in others? Why have we seen so little innovation in transport in my lifetime, but so much innovation in computing and, and communication, uh, for example. So these are the issues I try and tackle in the book. And I also try and tackle the huge resistance to innovation. None of us think we're against innovation. We all say we're in favor of it. And we're all enthusiastic adopters of new iPhones or whatever it might be. But when you think about it, anybody who comes up with a new idea has to run a pretty stiff gauntlet of people saying this might be a bad idea we're not sure we should do it how about the precautionary principle anyway uh, i've got a vested interest in some other technology it means that i don't want you to to um, sell this new idea you know think of the way that vaping and fracking and gmos have really struggled particularly in europe to gain a foothold uh, in uh, the uh, modern economy what i'm going to do is i'm just going to run through uh, about 12 bullet points that come out of the book. But the book is not an essay about innovation. It's a series of stories. I deliberately set out in this book to, to tell the tale of the airplane, uh, to tell the tale of the computer, of the search engine, of the steam engine, of vaccines, of vaping, to tell stories, because I think it's through stories that people really understand the world. And I thought if I would do that, then then certain themes would keep cropping up. And sure enough, they did. And these are the themes that I think kept cropping up in the stories. To get the stories, you're going to have to go to the book. But to get the themes, I'm going to give you a short um, glimpse of them here. Uh, Innovation is gradual. It's much more gradual than people think. We tend to think in terms of disruptive innovations, but when you look at a disruptive innovation, you nearly always find that it was preceded by a lot of um, preparatory work and it was succeeded by a lot of work to, bed, to embed it in society. Um, think of Moore's law. You know, in the end, Moore's law, the, the shrinking of transistors, is a hugely disruptive thing. It's led to the explosive use of, of uh, computers. I argue in the book that soon there will be more transistors on the planet than there are grains of sand. They're both made of silicon, in a sense. One's silicon dioxide, one's plain silicon, but the, still, you know, that's an incredible thought. That shows how small they've become. But it's not an overnight thing. It's a very gradual thing. In fact, Gordon Moore spotted in the early 1960s that the uh, uh, cost of computing was halving every... Um, uh, the cost of a given amount of, of computing on a chip was halving every uh, year or two. Uh, and that became Moore's law. 
and it was followed for the next 50 years and nobody was able to cheat it and nobody's able to jump ahead. And if you look at the decline in the cost of computing, it shows an incredibly steady progress through the 20th century with no sign of jumps when we, for example, move from vacuum tubes to solid state um, silicon and no sign of um, pauses when we had a depression or a war or something like that. It's really weird. And that's true of a lot of innovation. It's surprisingly incremental. It's not nearly as sudden as we like to think. It's very serendipitous. That is to say, there's a lot of luck involved. People have to change their plans, change their ideas about what they're inventing. Kevlar, Teflon, the post-it note were all invented by people looking for something completely different. Um, uh, you know, the post-it note was a guy looking for permanent glue for paper. He came up with temporary glue for paper and thought, well, that's no use. And then he went off to his choir practice and thought, I, you know what, this might be quite helpful for marking my place in my, choir, in my hymn book. Um, it's recombinant. That is to say, nearly all new technologies consist of combining old technologies. There's almost no technology you can think of that doesn't consist of a different combination of existing technologies. Uh, my favorite example of this is the pill camera, which came about after a conversation between a gastroenterologist and a guided missile designer. That's what I call ideas having sex, bring together new ideas and make sure they have a baby idea. That's basically how innovation happens. Innovation is different from invention. Invention means coming up with a new thing. Innovation means making that new thing available, affordable, and reliable in such a way that people actually go out and use it. Um, the uh, difference is nicely encapsulated in a cartoon of a beaver and a rabbit looking at the Hoover Dam in Nevada. And the uh, beaver is saying, no, I didn't build it, but it is based on an idea of mine. That uh, development of the Hoover Dam is the difference between inventing something and innovating something, in my view. Trial and error is a crucial ingredient of in innovation. Um, again and again, as I told my stories, as I looked up the histories of innovation, I found people emphasizing the importance of making mistakes and learning from them, of trying one thing and finding it didn't work and trying another and doing so again and again and again. Almost never did someone have a good idea and go straight to it and, and, and it worked first time. Um, and the guys who really got this, who really understood that trial and error was at the heart of innovation, were the ones who triumphed. So someone like Thomas Edison, um, did 5,000 different experiments with plant material till he settled upon uh, one uh, species of Japanese bamboo that provided the perfect filament for a light bulb. Uh, and he once said, uh, I haven't failed, I've just found 10,000 different ways that don't work. Was that him or was that Henry Ford? Once somebody said that. Innovation is a team sport. It's just not true that individuals in ivory towers make great innovations. Uh, they try to, but they have to, in the end, combine and compare, compare their ideas with other people to make it work. It never works to go off uh, and do it secretly uh, on your own. There was a guy who invented an airplane. Uh, in 1903 and he got a huge grant from the US government. He was the head of the Smithsonian Institution. Um, he did it in secret, he unveiled it in front of a crowd and it crashed straight into the Potomac River in 20 feet. Um, there was two other guys who 10 days later on a barrier island off North Carolina um, 
did get an aeroplane into the air. They were called Orville and Wilbur Wright, and they had done everything right. They had talked to as many people as they could find around the world, in Australia, in France, in America, in, in, in Germany, uh, about building gliders and about wind tunnels and all the different things. They realized that innovation was a team sport, not an individual pursuit. There's something inexorable about innovation. Once it gets started in one area, it tends to just move forward under its own steam, choosing people to do it for it. It doesn't need heroes to make it happen. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, if you, again, going back to the light bulb, um, Edison invented the light bulb. Well, did he? Actually, what about Joseph Swan here in Newcastle who did it? Well, what about Lodigin in Russia? Didn't he invent the light bulb? Yes, they all did. 21 different people have a good claim to have invented the light bulb independently in the 1870s without conferring. That's pretty weird, isn't it? Well, no, because what was happening was that the technologies you needed to combine, the technologies of electricity, of vacuums, of glass, of all these kind of things, had got reached the point where it was right, where it was inevitable someone would put them together. Same with the search engine in the 1990s. Uh, it became inevitable that once you had networked computers, someone would invent a machine for searching what you wanted to find on the internet. It didn't require um, Larry Page to meet Sergey Brin for that to happen. Um, Yahoo did it, lots of other companies did it in the early 1990s. And yet, neither the light bulb nor the search engine were predictable in advance. Nobody saw them coming. I mean, even Page and Brin didn't think they were inventing a search engine. They thought they were cataloging the internet. It dawned on them very late what they were actually inventing. Nobody in the 1980s, or very few people, are writing, you know, once we've networked computers, the real lucrative thing is going to be the people who design the engines by which we search for what we want to find on the internet. So innovation is amazingly predictable when you look backwards. It's amazingly unpredictable when you look forwards. And that paradox leads to a lot of very stupid things being said about the future of technology. Um, Ken Olson, the head of the biggest, most successful computer company, well, one of the biggest, most, one most successful computer company in the world, uh, said in 1977, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their own home. Paul Krugman in, 90, in 1997 said, by 2005, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy is no greater than the fax machines. Steve Ballmer in 2007 said, the iPhone the iPhone's going to get no market share in this market, no market share. The uh, innovations go through something called a hype cycle, at least what I call a hype cycle. That is to say, um, and this is a guy called Roy O'Mara deserves the credit for this. Uh, in the long run, we underestimate the impact of a new innovation on society. In the short run, we overestimate it. Uh, it's not linear. Uh, so in the first 10 years, the internet was pretty disappointing. In the second 10 years, it wasn't. Uh, same with genomics. Uh, immediately after 2000, Bill Clinton said, the, you know, genomics means we're going to cure cancer and get rid of all disease. Well, it didn't work out that way. But then gradually, genomics is beginning to have a big impact. So there tends to be this slow buildup and then a rapid acceleration. And that's what takes the futurologists by surprise. Innovation doesn't like big unified regimes. It's 
there's very little innovation in empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Ming Empire, the Roman Empire. They're all pretty bad at innovation. It's not good in big companies either. Um, on the whole, big companies really struggle to get innovative. And the way they uh, remain innovative is by parking a few bright people in a, in a garage somewhere, calling it a skunk works and telling them to think outside the box. Um, they can't do it in-house otherwise. Innovation is evolutionary. That is to say, um, it shows descent with modification. When you get on an airplane, you rather hope it has been designed by an intelligent person, that it's the product of intelligent design, to, to use the phrase. But actually, when you think about it, the person who designed it didn't start from scratch. They started with the pre previous design and adapted it, and so on, all the way back to the Wright brothers. Um, so in that sense, and the ones, the designs that didn't work, that either crashed too often or were too expensive to run, they got left behind. And the ones that worked through a process of natural selection survived. Innovation we tend to think of as coming out of science. Scientific philosophical inquiry discovers principles which are then applied in technologies that we all use. And that does sometimes happen. But just as often, it's the other way around. We tinker with technologies and come up with things that work, and we then go back and try and understand why. The science of thermodynamics came out of the steam engine. The science of chemistry came out of the dyeing industry. Very nice recent example, CRISPR gene editing, exciting new technology, looks like it comes out of Berkeley and MIT universities. But actually, when you examine its prehistory, you find that a key role was played by the yogurt industry before it even got into universities. There's a, that's a really nice case of how it's a reciprocal uh, arrangement. The way I put it is science, um, uh, sorry, uh, innovation is the seed of science just as often as it is the fruit of science. Innovation creates jobs rather than destroys them. The idea that automation uh, gets, causes unemployment has been around with us for 200 years. Every 30 or 40 years, we have a new panic about how innovation is going to result in mass unemployment. It never happens. It never will happen. Uh, the richer we get through innovation, the more we're going to find ways of giving each other things to do. Innovation can be infinite in a world of finite resources. Why? Because it can cause us to do more with less. Innovation in agriculture has meant that we now use 68% less land to produce a given amount of food as we did 50 years ago. Uh, innovation in technology means that there's only 13% as much aluminium in a drinks can as there was when drinks cans were first invented. Um, the amount of stuff used in the British economy in total, that is to say imported stuff and produced stuff, stuff that comes out of mines and the water and minerals and metals and all that kind of stuff, is going down. It's not going down per capita. I mean, it is going down per capita. It's not just going down per capita. It's going down in total. We're using less stuff every year. That's pretty remarkable when you think about how our population is going up and how our affluence is going up. And finally, and this is the big theme that emerges from my book, is that innovation flourishes in freedom. That is to say, uh, the more you free people up to um, uh, express their wishes as consumers in what it, was, what, it, what it is they want from innovators, and express their uh, experimental 
interests as producers to see if they can come up with new ideas to satisfy those wishes of consumers, the more you free people to do that, free people to do experiments, free people to do trial and error, free people to make wrong decisions and try again to change their minds, the more you get innovation. And just to give you a nice sort of parable about this, think of the history of China. China went through a period of being by far the most innovative part of the world in around 1000 AD uh, under the Song Dynasty. And what was so good about the Song Dynasty? That was the period when China invented gunpowder and compasses and printing and paper money and all these different kinds of things. Well, what was so good about the Song Dynasty was that it, it believed fervently in economic devolution. It devolved decisions down to the local level. It said, if you want to be a merchant and run your own affairs, that's fine. Um, uh, we will try not to interfere from the center. It was followed after a Mongol interruption by the Ming Dynasty, which had exactly the opposite rule, which said basically anything you do as a merchant, as an entrepreneur, we have to approve first as a Mandarin in Beijing, and we have to uh, not only uh, know exactly where you are at every month, but also what your stock is, what you're trying to sell, what you're trying to invent, whether you're interested in doing foreign trade or not, and we'll give you a permit to do that. Um, it was exactly the opposite, and it killed the goose that laid the golden eggs and led to China becoming stagnant and impoverished over the, few, few, over the coming centuries. So liberating people is a crucial ingredient of innovation. And just to give you a really good example of how to do that, the Clinton administration in the late 1990s passed a series of laws through Congress that deliberately liberated e-commerce. They set about trying to make it as easy as possible for people to set up online businesses, not be sued or infringe intellectual property if they did so. It was a raft of legislation, including the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and things like that. They were deliberately libertarian pieces of legislation. So when people say, oh, you guys are against uh, legislation, I'm actually for permissive legislation that sets out deliberately to try and liberate innovation because i think that's the way to spark an innovation revolution which by jove we need because if we are to recover rapid economic growth uh, and uh, recover from a pandemic as well as to get new vaccines new medical devices all the things we didn't have enough of going into this pandemic then we're going to need a ton of innovation Thanks, and I look forward to answering some questions, or trying to answer some questions. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Matt. Really, really uh, enlightening uh, and eloquent summation of the arguments in the, in the book, uh, and plenty of food for thought there. So um, if you would like to speak, as I said earlier, go to the participants button at the bottom, click on that, and then you should find a little box within the box that says raise hand. And uh, you, I'll, I'll take you as many of you as I possibly can. So I'll start with, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Shamie Riley. Um, I'm going to have to ask you to unmute yourself. Hello. Have you managed it? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes. Hello? Okay. Um, 
I'm fascinated by looking at um, evolution from an historical perspective. Um, and one of the things that I have um, come across is the link between scarcity and um, instability and how it fuels innovation. Um, what is your knowledge or take on um, how that has happened over history? Can I just clarify which word you used there? Was it sparsity or scarcity or something? Scarcity. 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 Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Okay. I'll, I'll take three or four more and then I'll um, come back to Matt. So uh, we have Giovanni, uh, Giovanni Martinez. Go ahead. Hi. Hello. Thank you. Um, thank you, Matt. Um, very interesting. All the information. I'm here in San Francisco, so you can understand Great. that I'm in the center of innovation. So. Um, we are definitely, you know, at a very unique point in time with all this crisis happening. Um, and for example, with monetary policy virtually useless due to extremely low rates, negative rates in certain cases, um, do you think that open innovation may be the tool needed to reactivate our economies after this pandemic? Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, and I have Fender. Hello, Fender. Uh, you, you might have to uh, unmute yourself, I'm afraid. Can you hear me All now? Right. Sorry, Hello. John Fender. Sorry, the first name got omitted. I had a very interesting lecture. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on a number of things which might uh, promote innovation. Uh, firstly, I don't know whether you've got any thoughts on the role of what might be called innovation clusters. It's sometimes said that if a large number of firms um, gather together or people gather together, that promotes uh, innovation, things like uh, Silicon Valley and the like. Uh, if we believe that innovation clusters are important, is there anything we can do to promote innovation clusters? Secondly, I was wondering whether you could comment on the role of education in promoting innovation, um, perhaps the role of universities and also um, education more generally. And thirdly, I was wondering whether you had any thoughts about finance and investment. It's sometimes um, finance and innovation. It's sometimes said that uh, financial factors, um, difficulty in obtaining finance is an important deterrent uh, for many innovators. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And if it is an important factor, do you have any thoughts on how we might um, solve the problem. Okay, thanks. Oh, thank you very much indeed uh, for all those questions. I'll take them quickly in turn. Scarcity and instability. Uh, it's certainly true that instability is important, I think. One of the enemies of innovation is the, uh, is, is, is the stable vested interests who want to uh, get in the way of uh, innovators upsetting their um, cozy monopolies. And I think that's a huge problem that we have today. I think compared with 20 years ago, we have allowed big corporations to become much too vested in uh, keeping things stable and keeping their market shares and not allowing innovators to uh, come in and eat their lunch. Um, uh, and as for, for, for scarcity, um, Yes, it's clearly important that scarcity is, is, is some sort of part of this, but I think it's also worth mentioning that 
the old phrase, necessity is the mother of invention, doesn't really stack up when you think about it. Because if necessity was really what was driving innovation, then the most innovative parts of the world would be the poorest parts of the world, the places where people really, really need help, rather than the places which are already quite well off. And actually, that's not true. It tends to be the richest parts of the world at any time in history where that happens. And that actually brings me on to John's point about clusters. Um, it's very interesting how one part of the world has been way ahead of all others in innovation at any one point in history, but it's not always the same part of the world. So most recently, it's been California. Um, 150 years ago, it was, it was in Britain. Um, uh, before that, it was probably in the Netherlands. Before that, Renaissance Italy. Before that, China. Um, you know, all the way back to ancient Greece. You can say, here's where the bushfire is burning brightest. And these, are, these tend to be places that do a lot of trade, and therefore they get a lot of people traveling to them and ideas traveling to them. They tend to be relatively wealthy. They tend to be self-governing. They tend often to be city-states. I think it's safe to think of San Francisco as a city-state these days in many ways, just like Florence or Genoa was uh, in, in times past. Um, uh, they tend not to be empires. Um, so and, and the, these clusters work because it's not just that people come together and collaborate. It's also that you get cross-fertilization from different sectors. Uh, so when um, in the early 20th century, Harbour and Bosch were inventing the nitrogen fixation process that basically fed the world in the 20th century, they couldn't have done it without a powerful German dye uh, and chemical industry next door to them and a powerful German uh, metal industry in terms of building the, the 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 devices that could withstand temperatures and pressures that they needed. So so there's a real cross fertilization between different sectors goes on in these clusters. And yes, we need to try and encourage those clusters. Um, uh, uh, on education and finance, John, uh, I, yes, of course they're all important. Um, but there's a degree to which education. Um, drums creativity out of people so we've got to get the balance right i think uh, i think we all know what what we're talking about in in some degree in there uh, and in finance um the uh the, the the huge problem that the that britain tends to have compared with america is that it can produce lots of startups and lots of good ideas out of universities but it doesn't tend to be able to get them through the valley of death where they grow into big companies. They tend to sell out too early. Um, uh, finance is very important, but, you know, an awful lot of the startups in Silicon Valley of the last 20 years actually needed very little capital. You know, they were, they were basically garage, you know, think of Google. Google never needed all that much capital. It generated its own capital. So the idea that finance is a break on on uh, innovation, I think, is a lot less true now than it was a generation ago. Um, just back to Giovanni's point about open innovation, uh, I think this is really important. And um, if if you look at even the early history of steam locomotives, a really important part was played by a magazine called Lean's Engine Reporter, in which a guy called Lean just published stuff about engines. Um, 
Uh, and this was really useful in getting people to share ideas. It was effectively an open source innovation um, uh, software, but it was a magazine rather than a program. And if you look at what's happening in the software industry today, it is moving more and more to cloud-based open innovation systems. Um, and it's no accident that, uh, I think it was Google, just paid a fortune relatively recently for a, a big open source software company. So um, I think the future does belong to open source and shared stuff. Uh, and if you think about it, we've been using the cloud for hundreds of years you know the idea the, the knowledge of how to build a pencil as leonard reed famously said doesn't exist inside people's heads nobody knows how to build a pencil uh, it exists between people's heads among people's heads people know different parts of the picture nobody knows the whole right so that's my answers to those three okay right so i'm going to take another four now and then come back to, to matt so I'll take the Android known as RR7 iPhone, and then Jenny, Keith, and Jan. So, RR7 iPhone, whoever you are, if you could unmute yourself. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's Robert Roland. Sorry about that, Rob. It's my alias name there. And and Matt, it's great uh, to see you and hear you. It's been a while since I last saw you. Um, great. You and I have a great. Uh, our, our, one of the things that you and I have close to our heart is climate change. And, and some of the measures uh, and technology being used to address it. Energy, I, I think, is probably one of the few areas where we really haven't seen a huge quantum technology revolution. And we still use coal, we still use gas, still oil. The extraction process has definitely seen technology with things like horizontal drilling, which is, is, is extraordinary how deep they can go to extract the oil. But actually, the, the, what we use as energy has really hasn't made big leaps and bounds. Now, I had a couple of questions. One, do you believe that the, if you like, the, the ways to mitigate the climate change issue through wind turbines, solar, is, is the answer? Or is the, and the second part is, is there some kind of technology out there that could make all these subsidies into wind farms redundant in one fell swoop? Okay, great. Uh, Jenny Cunningham, could you un unmute yourself? Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Thanks very much, uh, Matt. That was what they call a real tour de force. Um, in in your book, you, you talk um, uh, a little bit towards the end about China, uh, pointing out um, how much innovation is coming out of China you know, in terms of AI and gene editing, nuclear power, and so forth. You did make one point about them also really racing ahead, the state racing ahead in terms of infrastructure, um, sort of data networks, and of course, transport and so on. And it's... It, Although you go on to sort of talk about the limitations you foresee um, about China, I was wondering, though, about sort of state intervention. So, for example, um, you know, if you, if you look at both France and Spain, you know, in the very recent period, they have really um, uh, built very, very large, high, you know, uh, 
uh, high-speed rail infrastructure, um, which has connected, you know, a lot of their centers and so forth. Or if you take something going back a little bit, if you look at the development of antibiotics or vaccines and so forth, really none of them had a real application until you got a national health service, until you actually got, um, you know, coordination of health services and delivery of health services. So I suspect you would be very, very um, uh, uh, doubtful about state intervention and that sort of thing. But obviously the state does play a, a, a role in terms of particularly infrastructure, which you point out does facilitate innovation. Thank you. Great, thanks very much, Jenny. Uh, Keith Carter, could you unmute yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, thanks, Matt. That was interesting. Um, I'm a fan of stuff, so I can't remember where um, um, where I read this, but I think you said somewhere that intellectual property wasn't helpful to um, uh, to innovation. I'd like you to expand a bit because I can't remember why you said that was, but it's sort of counterintuitive. That's brilliant. Okay, thanks. And uh, Jan Bo, Jan Bowman, could you unmute yourself and what's your point? Uh, yeah, that, that was really interesting, Matt. Thank you so much. And your, I saw a bit of your um, speech on video as well before on YouTube, which was also very good. Um, I was really struck by your thing about the limitlessness of, of knowledge and ideas. And I wondered if you could just say something about the difference between what the connection is between creativity and innovation. Is it that creativity is, well, how would you contrast the two? I get the impression, because you talked about several things that seem the same, serendipitous, recombinant, um, and like art, innovation requires luxury. It doesn't happen so much in, in poor countries as in rich ones, but can you say something about what you, how you, what you consider the difference between the two? How do they, how do they work together, please? Okay, Matt, I'm gonna throw in one more from, uh, from the chat, because I thought it was very, very pertinent, uh, it's from Teresa, and she says, can we have true innovation in a culture that is risk-averse? Are our ambitions too limited now? Right. Over to you, Matt. Those are five really good questions, and I'd like to do an hour on each if I could, but I'll, I'd better not. Um, uh, Rob, on uh, climate change and energy technologies, um, I quite agree with you. The, the biggest uh, innovations we've seen have actually been the shale gas revolution, the, the ability to get... Uh, horizontal drilling and fracking going uh, underground has has transformed the energy scene. It's made it's 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 made us kiss goodbye to any idea of peak oil or peak gas in in coming decades, which only ten years ago we a lot of people thought were very was very plausible. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything like as exciting a revolution going on in renewables, despite all the hype. Uh, hugely subsidy dependent still. The cost is not coming down rapidly at all. Uh, they keep saying it is, but if you look at their capital expenditure, it's simply not true. Um, uh, they're bidding lower uh, prices, uh, but in the hope that they'll be bailed out by higher energy prices when the time comes. Uh, and there's a good reason for this, which is that wind and solar are very low density energy systems you you know the, the the energy in wind is is very small you have to have an enormous machine to get a small amount of energy out of it the opposite is true of a gas well um, uh, and with a low uh, uh, density system you get a very low energy return on energy invested 
um, a, a wind turbine basically spends its first 10 years um, earning back enough energy to build itself or to build its replacement, if you like. Only then is it producing net energy for the rest of us. Um, whereas an oil well or a gas well or a nuclear power station is completely different uh, in that respect. Um, uh, the failure of nuclear fission to innovate and the fact that it is now declining as a proportion of our global energy system is an extraordinary fact when you think how limitless and how potentially cheap nuclear power could be. But we have driven up the cost of nuclear by our insistence basically on a regulatory regime that does not allow trial and error, that does not allow experimentation. Um, and basically that's because you have to go through such an expensive process to get a nuclear design um, uh, approved uh, that you uh, daren't change it uh, thereafter. Um, uh, and, and essentially we've just driven the cost of nuclear up um, and it's by far the safest form of energy in terms of deaths per um, uh, kilowatt hour generated. Solar and wind are much more dangerous. Um, uh, so that seems to be a dead end. Unless we can resolve the regulatory issues, uh, then we're not going to be able to get the process of driving the price down that you need um, uh, through experimentation. So is there a, a silver bullet that can crack this? possibly fusion. I think nuclear fusion uh, is now very exciting in a way that it wasn't five or ten years ago. And that's because of the private sector getting involved and a new technology called high temperature superconductors, which means that you can build spherical tokamak reactors rather than donut shaped ones, um, which is leading to a lot of interesting experiments around the world. And the big lumbering fusion projects that were always going to take 40 years to to, to, to produce stuff and have been saying that for 40 years, um, uh, they are having an end run done random by the private sector. Now that will produce, I am fairly sure by the end of this decade, um, workable fusion reactors. The question is, if we subject them to the same regulatory regime as we do nuclear fission, we will prevent them being cheap and that will be a problem. So that's where we've got to get a permissive but still safe regulatory regime that encourages different designs uh, and allows experiment to, to, to discover cheaper ways of doing things. Jenny asked about China uh, and vaccination uh, requiring the nation state and so on. And just on that last point, I don't agree, Jenny, that the, the nation national health systems are necessary for technologies like vaccination. I mean, I write in the book about the invention of vaccination uh, in the early 18th century by a rather amazing woman who it wasn't the invention, it was the innovation of vaccination, a woman called Lady Mary Workley Montague, who went to be the ambassador's wife in Constantinople and came back and said, there's this amazing practice that they do in the harems there. The women go around and deliberately give a tiny bit of smallpox to kids so that they don't die of it later in life. Um, similarly, a slave brought the idea to... to uh, America around the same time, a guy called Onesimus, uh, and uh, was taken up by the preacher Cotton Mather, who gave it to a doctor called Boylston. And, uh, and you know, so it, it, innovation is a technology that was saving lives on an enormous scale long before there were national health systems. Um, but your point about China generally is, is, is well made. 
because here is a communist state-directed uh, regime that is nonetheless producing innovations at a greater rate than probably anywhere on earth. I mean, I would argue China is now ahead of California as a source of innovation. If you look at what consumers do with electronics and digital technologies there, it's, it's ahead of anything Americans do now. It's not just copying, it's, it's ahead. How is that possible in a communist system? Well, the answer is, under Deng Xiaoping's um, uh, reforms, China became a surprisingly free place economically, while not being at all free politically. Um, that is to say, if, if you wanted to invent something, there was very little to stop you. Very few local officials and rules and regs and so on, and planning laws and zoning laws to, to, to make your life difficult, as long as you weren't inventing a new political party, of course. Now, that compromise of economically free but politically not is, I think, being torn up by the Xi regime. I think it's only dawning on us slowly in the West just how different President Xi's regime is uh, compared with um, uh, what went before. And I think China is going through in, much, in a much faster way what happened when the Ming emperors took over from the Mongols and before them from the Song. Uh, and we're seeing centralization and dirigist regime that will prevent China being any good at innovating in the next few decades. And I think that the game's already up for China. Keith asked uh, why I don't think intellectual property is helpful for uh, uh, innovation. And the answer is the empirical evidence suggests that it's not helpful. Again and again, studies have looked at this and looked at countries that strengthened their intellectual property. Did it result in increased innovation? No. Countries that weakened their intellectual property, did it result in decreased innovation? No. Think about what's happened in the music industry. Um, pirating and streaming have now basically demolished the ability to live off your royalties as a musician to a surprisingly large extent. Has that resulted in a, a, a complete you know, strike by musicians so that none of them go out and innovate musically? No. There's lots of innovation going on. I think we're simply fooled by the word property in intellectual property. Um, uh, it, 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 the, it is true that in order to look after your house, you need to own it in the sense that be able to exclude people from it, and then you invest in it. It is not true of a patent. Uh, the whole point of a patent is to share the knowledge that you've got, not to keep it exclusively to yourself. Uh, and and it, 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 you're right, it's counterintuitive, but the idea that patents encourage innovation just isn't borne out by history. And in the book, I lament how much time the Wright brothers or uh, Marconi or Samuel Morse spent in court frantically defending their patents um, when they could have been out there inventing new things. And most of the software industry um, does not rely on patents because it's very easy to invent a way around someone's patent very quickly. And if you're going to try and sit back and rake in the money from patents, um, uh, then forget it. Just one final point on that. Thanks to changes in the law, lobbied by basically the Disney Corporation and its chums, my grandchildren are going to be able to make money out of my books 70 years after my death. That's the copyright rules. And I don't even have to assert my copyright. It's asserted automatically for me. 
what's the point of that? I mean, how is that encouraging innovation? That's a ridiculous idea. My grandchildren should get off their bottom and get a job. I don't have grandchildren yet, but when they do, that's what I hope they do. And that brings me to creativity and innovation. Jan's question, um, what's the difference? What's the connection? Well, I'm a bit of a roundhead on this. I think that the cavalier idea that creativity is what matters and it's brilliant individuals who count is, is wrong. Uh, I think innovation is a grind. It's hard work. It's trial and error. It's not genius. It's people sitting around trying things. And then if it doesn't work, trying other things. So I think in a way, the creativity thing is a bit of a red herring. Now, it, you can redefine creativity as people who have perseverance and um, uh, prepared to think differently and so on. Um, uh, and you can get around the, the difference that way. But I think we've had far too much e emphasis on um, uh, the, the sort of lonely genius hero who happens to have a spark deep within them that makes them great innovators. And part of the reason I don't like that is because it rules most of us out. Most of us are not like that. And if we keep telling ourselves that George Stevenson and Thomas Edison and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos are demigods, then we do our kids a disservice because our kids need to learn that, no, actually, they're just ordinary blokes who just had a little bit more perseverance than everybody else. Teresa's point about risk aversion, I'll just quickly say, I agree with you. I have a lot in the book about how we're far too precautionary these days. We, we've allowed risk aversion to get control of far too many areas of public policy, and we're seeing the costs of that in the fact that we, we did not have anything like uh, a vaccine uh, platform ready for this pandemic. We had not allowed diagnostic devices, you know, tests for viruses to be developed to nearly the right extent. It takes, on average, 40 months to get a new diagnostic device approved in the European Union. Well, how many entrepreneurs can sit around for nearly four years waiting for that? Of course not. They're going to go and invent a video game instead um, when they could have been inventing a virus test. So risk aversion has cost lives, yes. Okay, right. A quick breather for, for Matt. I'll take another four or five. So that would be Para, James Woodhausen, John Rowland, Phil Mullen, and Jagdish. So, Para, if you'd like to yep. fire you, away. You can hear, yeah? Yep. Okay, good. And uh, thank you, Matt. I thought the book uh, was very interesting, and I did learn quite a lot from it. Um, my question really uh, is uh, innovation, the word itself, for me anyway, appears to be like a, the, a buzzword. Um, and certainly for my own background, which is in human resources, there is a tendency to call uh, or to look at, uh, you know, work processes uh, or even what people do. So networking collaborating across multidisciplinary teams, sometimes even with your competitors, engaging your employees, uh, you know, unleashing their uh, potential to solve problems. All this kind of becomes called innovation. Mm. 
-hmm. And I'm just, um, it doesn't really uh, stick with me. And I'd quite like to know what you think about it. Um, 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 am I answering that or, or uh, are you going to read some much. I think we may have lost Rob for Oh, a we've second. lost Rob. Well, why don't yes. I, Do you want to answer that one and then we'll go back yeah. out for James? I'll, yeah. I'll answer that one, Pyra, because it's a really good point. And, and yes, there is the most awful amount of nonsense talked about innovation. And it's one of those buzzwords that everybody uses and everybody says they're in favour of, etc. And it, the, it's, it's crept into management speak to an uh, annoying extent. Um, we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is good innovation done in organizational terms. You know, in other words, innovation that is not about technology or something like that, but is actually about how you, um, uh, how you get teams to work together or um, how you uh, get people to get the best out of each other in, in human resources, like the, the field you're in, Para. Um, uh, so, um, so there is, you know, there is a, a role for innovation in that sort of area. But I do think that it's important to try and separate the wheat from the chaff here uh, and to recognize that an awful lot of uses of the word innovation are not really about it. In the book, I do try and do this and say, look, I'm talking about real innovation. And that's partly why I go for hard technology examples, uh, because you can't deny that the, you know, the motor car or the aeroplane are were innovations at one point um um uh but uh I, yeah yeah you know let's let's be wary of management speak uh talking about innovation too much quite right great thank you um we will go back out to uh james woodhausen now oh well <clears throat> can you hear me we can hello uh hello matt Hello, nice James. To you. Um, I thought for your benefit and for those who have or haven't read uh, the bigpotatoes.org manifesto, we might rehearse a few agreements and a few disagreements in the light of your presentation and what I've had time to read of your, your book. And I want to say, first of all, that your refreshing attack on Mariano uh, Matsukata <laughs> and her doctrine that the state is behind anything that's good. Uh, I think, you know, we're all in favor of that. And uh, I think also your focus on uh, the barriers to innovation, whether the precautionary principle, regulation, intellectual property, uh, risk aversion, and all of that, uh, is very right. And I think, by the way, uh, Paro is uh, absolutely right to say how much, you know, the sort of feel-good factor with innovation now um, rids it of any meaning in lots of places. I wondered if you might, just as a footnote, talk about some bogus innovations, because I think we mm -hmm. both agree that not all innovations are good, even the technological ones, some of, uh, as you were hinting, with wind and solar. Uh, is a problem. But I think that leads me to my first sort of worry about uh, your book, much as I uh, love it all to bits. And that is that um, the process of historical change that governs innovation seems to me um, somewhat uh, downplayed in your book 
and uh, in favour of the occasionally sweeping generalisation. And uh, that's a very heavy charge, uh, and against you particularly heavy. It's, I'm not charging you with it. I just want to come around the other side and see if you can see some of what could, uh, you know, could be a compliment uh, to what you're saying. For example, you say that uh, you talk about Moore's law, as everybody does. Uh, if you have read the paper, as I know you have, you'll find the word law is not in it. Uh, and therefore, I think the malleability of technology and innovation, you know, in terms of the historical process, is it going fast, is it going slow? That has a lot to do, Matt, with the morale of society, which is something that goes bigger than risk aversion. Right? And it has also to do, as you rightly say, with the, you know, substance or less substance of authoritarian structures. You yourself point to the dynamic quality of it in contrasting the the dung economic reforms with the G kind of authoritarian era. And, you know, uh, I think those different eras in the history of innovation, um, which are not sort of cyclical or structural or any of that, but are to do with, you know, how mankind is looking at its problems and what it feels about those things and what, who, who it can rally to the cause. I think that's underestimated. Now, uh, if I may just say in the second half of it, there's lots to Quickly, say. But, James. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is innovation doesn't explain everything. I love it as much as you. But, uh, you know, when you say it's recombinant uh, and so on, uh, or subject to a timeless hype cycle, I'm thinking that it has an autonomy that is separate from the affairs of men a little bit in your scheme. Now, agree very much. Trial and error, yes. Freedom to do that, yes. Serendipity, absolutely. Um, but Thanks, put, James. Can you, uh, can you round up? Yeah. Uh, so it's, I wouldn't want you to objectify innovation too much, as we both love it so much, Matt. <laughs> Thank um, you, James. Uh, Matt, I'm going to keep going because we've got so many questions yep. to come in, uh, and then we'll come back to you in a moment. Um, John Rowland, could you unmute yourself? Hi there. Uh, right, very quick uh, question that uh, links to um, uh, powers actually. Um, can government innovate? And if so, what's the secret? Great, that's uh, nice and pithy. We like that, John. Thank you. Uh, Phil, could I ask you to unmute yourself, please? Yes, thanks. Uh, I had the pleasure, Matt, of just uh, finishing your book this afternoon, so uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, Certainly the, the narrative style really works for me. I, I find it both very informative on the sort of the history side and also, uh, you know, in a very entertaining fashion. Uh, the question I have is going to be is about the last chapter or perhaps the penultimate chapter in the English edition, the, uh, the innovation famine, uh, which uh, I was pleased to see in there, particularly coming from you as a well-known optimist. Uh, but you were, you know, emphasizing some of the problems today, which I see as uh, as quite that's quite huge. Um, uh, and I think it's important uh, to, to see that this seems to be the problems that you identify seem to be getting worse rather than there being any prospect of them somehow evaporating or disappearing. So my question is really going to be about what do you see as having changed in the last, say, 30 or 40 years, which, which, which accounts for that, uh, that, sort of, um, uh, that sort of uncomfortableness with uncertainty, the, 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 the the, the, the antipathy to creative destruction, all those things you describe, because you, I think you very well point to the barriers 
to innovation today, whether it's corporatism, uh, you know, the incumbency factor of big business, whether it's government regulation, patenting, as you've discussed and so on, or, you know, various anti-development protest groups and so on. But the, 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 the paradox that that throws up is all these institutions have been around for the 200 years, really, what we've had innovation, but something's obviously changed in the last 30 to 40 years, uh, which has made us so risk averse and, and uncomfortable with, uh, with uncertainty and so on. So what, what do you think that is socially, culturally, economically, politically, because mm -hmm. I think we've really got to get to grips with that because otherwise the, 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 all, all that we want to see coming out of innovation in the future and out of this pandemic won't be there because everything seems to be going in the opposite direction of wanting stability, status quo, you know, no change really. Great, thanks Phil. I'm gonna take Jagdish and then Chris and then come back to Matt, thank you. Jagdish, can you unmute yourself? Yes. Hi Matt, um, I haven't read your book yet, but after hearing your talk, I'm definitely going to get it and uh, and read it because it's right up my street because I, I like a bit of in innovation. Uh, years ago when I was at university, I remember we developed, because um, I was into um, alternative technology and so on. So I developed some gizmos for to capture solar energy, which could be, could be used in developing countries, which is where I'm kind of from. And uh, the Central Electricity Generating Board, which at that time was the big god of electricity in this country, uh, they, they funded the university. So they bought the thing out and sat on it because I was, you know, we were hoping to go and export it to developing countries so that they would become less dependent on, uh, uh, on electricity. And it really pissed us off that they sat on it and just would not let us develop it. And I think so when it comes to kind of innovation, I think it's, it's the role of you know, people in power, politics, commercial interests, those are the kind of things I think that are the biggest kind of knee on the neck of innovation, uh, I find. So, I mean, years later when, uh, uh, you know, Linux Torvald came up with the, the Linux, uh, the open source system, I was rejoicing. I thought, wow, great, we've, we're going to break the monopoly of the big boys and maybe we'll get a whole bunch of disruptors coming up and developing a lot of software and putting it out as open source. So these people couldn't make a lot of money out of it. But unfortunately, that seems to have died down. <laughs> you know, I don't think it got very far because nowadays innovation seems to be the biggest motivator behind innovation seem to be, you know, getting rich quick or celebrity status, you know, and rather than just pure innovation for its sake. So I'm just wondering whether you can comment on uh, the extent to which, you know, our, you know, people in power, commercial interests and all of those kind of things are the things which are the probably the biggest break on on innovation. Great, thanks Jagdish. And uh, Chris, and then we'll go back to Matt. Uh, can you hear me? We can. Yeah, that's good. Um, Matt, yeah, it's fantastic to see somebody unequivocally, unequivocally um, even um, standing up for innovation the way you do. Um, it needs to happen a hell of a lot more, I have to say. Um, but um, on the issue of like why innovation is uh, not really understood, um, is it uh, because a society has become um, more detached uh, from not just the innovation process, but the actual material manufacturing production process, um, producing the goods and machines um, that uh, we all depend on and live by every day? Um, it seems to be the case that as we've developed a more service-based economy, 
Um, you know, the expectation is that uh, material production like always takes place somewhere else. Um, you know, it, it's kind of almost like, you know, um, strange how I, I can imagine everybody thinks that virtually everything is made, just made in China now, you know. Um, so there's this like detachment, right, from the actual process of like, um, you know, sort of making uh, the material means that we live by. Um, and the way that works out is uh, that there just isn't the culture of experimentation. Um, and, you know, people are not expected to experiment, least of all, uh, like, like sole innovators and, and kind of inventors. Um, they barely exist, I would ar probably argue. But um, I think that uh, on the issue of finance, that really is a huge problem. Um, it may be the case that uh, for mass market kind of sort of goods, um, when you've got sort of large capitals, uh, different companies, corporates, um, sort of uh, planning and, and sort of, you know, organizing the next uh, or, or to produce the next iPhone or whatever. But for like small inventors, um, you really get squeezed out. Um, I've got a, a first-hand experience of this. Um, I've got a small technology company, uh, which is uh, producing a, it's not a, not a kind of a mass market good exactly. It's a, a, a new type of metal detector. Um, but, um, you know, a huge amount of potential. Um, but um, it's the bane of my life, trying to get the finance to actually develop it. Um, so as far as that goes, like kind of innovation, experimentation is just, is, it doesn't really happen. It's not experiment. It, it's not, sorry, it's not um, expected, um, which I think is, a, as I said, like a major, major problem. Great. Um, thanks. Thanks, Chris. Um, we'll come back to Matt now. Um, it's quite a lot to come back on there, Matt, but take what you can. Yeah, I, I won't be able to answer all of the points, but thank you very much. It's, again, some really interesting points. Um, and uh, James, I guess we're going to have to take this offline and you're going to have to give me a, a, a proper seminar on how I'm objectifying things and all that kind of stuff. But just pick up a couple of your points, um, very, very interesting points you made uh, altogether. But you asked, for example, a bogus innovation. I've got a chapter on uh, fakes, frauds, failures and fads. Um, uh, the best example is, of course, the Theranos um, debacle, you know, the company that became the, one of the most highly valued companies in Silicon Valley said it could use just a tiny drop of blood to diagnose lots of diseases. Turns out it was um, uh, basically uh, um, fibbing, um, I think is the safest word to use. Um, uh, but there are other examples in there too, like the fake bomb detectors that used uh, the language of technology and innovation to disguise the fact that they were completely fraudulent uh, and probably led to the loss of a lot of lives. So uh, there are huge stories here of um, uh, people using innovation uh, to disguise criminality and things like that. Um, on your point about historical change versus sweeping generalizations and the morale of society it, things like that. One of the things I'm very struck by is, yes, I can sort of tell a story about Deng Xiaoping's reforms, encouraging innovation and Xi Ping's reforms doing the opposite. And I can therefore, 
imply that innovation is going to shut up shop for 20 years because China can't do it and America's no good at it anymore or something like that. But it never seems to happen. Technology still seems to march along. Take the 1930s. This was a pretty disastrous decade in most of the world. Either it was mired in depression or it was um, uh, subsumed by fascism uh, in a lot of the world or communism. Uh, and yet the 1930s were a pretty inventive decade, you know, whether it was nylon or radar or uh, early computing or uh, all sorts of things got going in the 1930s. And by the way, the idea that all these things came out of the Second World War is, is, is not true. Antibiotics, you know, these kind of things. A lot of them got going before the Second World War. So, um, so there's this, the, I keep coming back to this point, and I think you made this point, uh, James, uh, of the... The, the, what what Kevin Kelly calls the technium, marching to its own rhythm, um, and just sort of telling us what it wants wants us to invent next for it. Um, I don't really see the world that way, but I think it's a it's a point that one needs to take into account. But anyway, there was lots more to to discuss with what James said. Um, uh, John asked the simple question: Can government innovate? Of course, the answer is yes. It invented moon shots you know it invented the apollo mission or did it well hang on it depended on private contractors to build a lot of the parts of the thing um uh uh it invented uh, nuclear weapons not such a great thing to have on your cv but there we are um but again a lot of private contractors involved in in those pro that pro in the manhattan project too um particularly in you know tennessee in the separation of the isotopes and things like that um uh, it invented GPS more recently uh, and for a long time it didn't work and it nearly gave up on it uh, and then it suddenly did begin to work and then it spilled into the private sector where it's been used uh, magnificently in all sorts of ways and it's now fantastically useful everything from Uber to to um, well you know GPS is everywhere isn't it um, uh, um, and that is a good example of what Mariana Mazzucati would say, well, hang on, we're not giving the government the credit for inventing that. We're, we're thinking that, that we could have, could have had it without the government. Well, I think that's a bit like giving the beaver the credit for the Hoover Dam, actually. Um, the, sure, the government invented the upstream idea of GPS and the first prototypes, but it needed a lot of work in the private sector before it became really useful to everybody. Um, Phil uh, asked the question uh, about uh, the innovation famine. Why are we so precautionary uh, these, these days? What's changed uh, in the last few decades? Um, and to some extent, you know, I can tell you stories about uh, the growth of corporate power and the uh, degree of crony capitalism in the system where government basically does favors to big companies and big companies lobby against innovation. I tell the story of James Dyson's bagless vacuum cleaner and how, you know, it, his rivals in Europe lobbied to have the regulations changed so that his, the advantages of his technology didn't, couldn't be uh, uh, shown up, um, things like that. Uh, so there's all that stuff. Uh, I think the power of corporations and governments in cahoots with each other um, needs to be examined. But I'd also point to the, the growth of pressure groups. Um, I think, you know, when you think that Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth and World Wildlife Fund between them earn a billion dollars a year, more than, 
Those are huge corporations. They're multinationals. They've got CEOs on six-figure salaries. They've got treasury departments investing money in, in things. They've got, um, you know, they've got all the trappings of big multinational firms. The only thing they don't have to do, unlike multinational firms, is actually produce anything. All they do is raise funds to look after the salary of their CEOs, as it were. Um, so they're the sort of perfect example of big multinational corporations. And what do they devote their energies to? Well, in the case of Greenpeace, stopping genetically modified organisms, even when they are clearly humanitarian, as in the case of golden rice. You know, it is shocking how much blood, blood that organization has on its hands as a result of those campaigns. Um, Friends of the Earth, devoting their energies to combating fracking all around the world with the help of a lot of money from the Russians, by the way, who didn't like fracking because it undermined the market for their gas. Um, so these are the kind of things we need to look at, the growth of very powerful vested interests against innovation. Pat, I've uh, got, um, we've got quite a lot of um, people, so I'm just very conscious. I'm sorry, I'm going too slow. Um, yeah. We have got the, the question um, about the detachment innovation and the detachment from manufacturing, but I wonder if you could just hold that thought and we'll try and get through the questions and yeah, uh, yeah. okay that. Jagdish made a good point I want to be very quick and just say um, mosquito bed nets story in my book really nice example of uh, innovation that saved gazillion lives made nobody any money um, Gates Foundation helped it um, there are some lovely examples of non non lucrative innovations out there um, and society more detached from the manufacturing process. Yes, I take up the point that Peter Thiel has made. We're good at, in, at innovating in digital, but we're not so good at innovating in, in, in the real world anymore. As he put it, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters. Oh, well done. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to try and shoot through the rest of the questions now. We've only got uh, just over 15 minutes and 10 people, so please keep it very brief. And remember to unmute yourself and mute yourself afterwards. And uh, let's try and get the rest of the questions down to Teresa, I think. So Alistair, Donald, uh, Daniel Benamy and Nico next. Alistair. Okay, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. That was a really enjoyable talk. I wanted to come back to the last point that you mentioned in your list of things, which is uh, the question of, of freedom. And on a specific uh, note, I, I just wanted to ask if you were to uh, have a, a, more, a set of more permissive legislation, uh, like you suggested, then what practically would that be just now? What do you think would really help? But secondly, and related, I think it raises the question of eyes thinking environment, because lots of people uh, these days seem a bit uh, down on blue skies thinking. In fact, you, you Uh, I think we might have lost Alistair. Let's move on to Daniel. Um, we've got half a question from Alistair there. Daniel, yeah, that, can you that'll do. I can, yep. go, go for it, Daniel. Nice to see you again, Daniel. Well, can you hear me? We can. Oh, yeah. Good to see you too. Yeah. yeah. If you could just say a bit more about what might be called the uh, paradox of innovation. I know you didn't use that term, but it seems to me implicit. And what you said, in other words, uh, as you 
argue very clearly innovation is fantastic I and mean, it's hugely beneficial to humanity. You make that case very clearly. As you also say, no one claims to be against innovation. Virtually everyone will say innovation is great, it's fantastic. And they'll, they'll say, go ahead with it. But at the same time, there does seem to be a real problem with getting it, getting it going, getting, getting it moving. Uh, I mean, you've talked to a certain extent about crony capitalism, you might call it that, but I don't find that entirely convincing as an explanation. I, mean, I don't think it's entirely untrue either. But it seems to me that you have a very strong, or there is a very strong consensus about putting limits on things. So, I mean, usually it's, you, it's uh, argued that using green language, you know, we have to be sustainable, we have to be green, we have to be precautionary. But it seems to me that there's that very strong mood which mitigates against, against innovation at the same time as people say they're in favour of it. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, Nico. Hi there. Um, just I would very briefly put in a defence of creativity, Matt, which I would at least argue that there'd be no modern computing revolution or smartphone revolution without human-computer interaction and user interface and interaction design. But I'll leave that point for now. Um, on the idea of co-innovation, I thought your point about Swan and Edison and Japanese bamboo was interesting. I think there also needs to be a, an idea in the air. The idea of electric lighting was, uh, it was needed in some way. Maybe humanity wasn't aware of it. And you had the same idea with the web. And at the time that Tim Berners-Lee was sitting in CERN inventing the web, People like Ted Nelson, who you'll know of, were, you know, had already created hypertext systems, which were very similar. Uh, and there were uh, EU-funded projects in that area. So I think something needs to be invented as well. There needs to be a sort of, uh, a, you know, maybe this is a, to James Woodhausen's point. Um, but my practical question is, um, obviously, you've re reflected on the issue around the pandemic and the ongoing recession and so on. And, We've talked a bit in relation to, um, I think, John Rowland's question about uh, government inventing or innovating. What, what would you recommend from a government policy point of view, particularly with respect to the institutions which are responsible for innovation in this country, primarily Innovate UK and the Catapults, but more broadly, perhaps in the area of political leadership, which Johnson has historically been very good at talking about innovation. He's seems to have forgotten that narrative now. What would you recommend government do to try and really kickstart a new era of innovation in the UK, if it can? Great. Thank you, uh, Nico. Dominic, we'll just keep racing through these questions. Uh, Dominic Standish, can you unmute yourself? Yeah. Yeah, good evening. Uh, thanks, Matt, for a great introduction. I've enjoyed many of your writings. Um, I'd like to ask a question which I don't really want to ask which was raised in your introduction, which was about the idea that empires are kind of anti-innovative. So I'm speaking from Northern Italy and I'm remembering the lines of the life of Brian about what have the Romans ever done for us? What was the rose, the sanitation, the list goes on and on. And I'm thinking about the British empire and the trains and many aspects of industry. And then I'm thinking about the USA and okay, it's not really empire, but out of the Second World War, I don't need to list the innovations as America took on the leading role in, in imperialism, that's chemicals or uh, IT or 
don't need to go down the list. Um, it's not merely a historical point, but it seems central to your thesis. I wonder, given your expertise on China, uh, how relevant that might be as we see the evolution of the Belt and Road Project and your very important point that you believe that China is more innovative than the US now. Great, thanks Dominic. And uh, next we've got Isa Anohali. Can you unmute yourself? It's Harley. Hi. Um, thanks for this. Um, I really agree with the description of innovation and creativity and how it works. Um, but you do make it sound like it's always accidental. And I'm wondering, is it possible to do innovation deliberately, really? I mean, trial and error, at the very least, is hard to sell these days. In my experience in corporate life, um, there's a lot of rhetoric about R&D and innovation. You get R&D departments set up, and then uh, six months later, a year later, they get shut down because nothing's come of them. Um, in trial and error, takes a while. Um, but, you know, it's difficult with short-term goals, um, to, difficult to justify something that hasn't got a certain outcome. So is it just the case that companies should have more faith and imagination, or should they not bother because it's all a big accident and someone else is probably going to come up with the idea anyway? Great. Thank you. Nice and succinct. Um, uh, I'm going to take the rest of the questions now. Please don't put your hand up if you have, haven't already. Uh, Sheila, Sheila McNerney, could you unmute yourself, please? Hello, can you hear me? We can. Just very, very quickly then, I was really interested, Matt, in your statement that one of the biggest enemies of innovation is the stable vested interests who want to keep their market shares. So on Thursday, I'm taking part in the Future of Construction panel. So I just wondered, would you agree that construction architecture in particular is one of the least innovative sectors in this country and wh why would that be the case you know we we still live in victorian houses and have drains that leak and the built environment of this in this country is incredibly poor quality it's you know 150 years old so the physical world is neglected in favor of this idea of a digital world but i just wondered what any thoughts at all about the construction sector Great, thanks Sheila. Uh, Paul Reeves and then Teresa and then Usha and then if anybody else has a question could we put them in the chat please? Uh, Paul, over to you. Yeah, I'll be very quick. Um, it occurred to me um, the idea of innovation, innovations with in inventions, whatever, but innovations in particular, they work best when they're connected to other innovations. Um, I'm thinking in terms of uh, how innovations can connect to, to other ones in, in certain circumstances given this is the economic forum, to allow reduced barriers to flow through the economy, uh, to, to, to allow increases in, say, things like productivity and maybe to expand markets. Um, I'll be very brief, but someone like Alfred Chandler, I think it was, was very good on this. Tiny innovations like um, standardization of couplings between trains allow, essentially allow different companies in America to share trains, expand markets. And as I say, my main point is, to allow barriers to be broken down, to allow this flow through the economy. Uh, I'll be very quick on my last point because it was inspired by uh, um, the earlier point of today it occurs to me, you have IT, yes, that's growing. Uh, transport, the real physical world isn't, but it seems to me like the financial markets, et cetera, are susceptible to the flow of data, knowledge and information but it seems to be much harder to be able to make use of that through things like the real hard world of manufacturing where the human footprint is something that really needs to be addressed. 
So I suppose that's the political point. The real barrier to these innovations comes through a kind of uh, adversity to actually having an impact on the real world. And that's why we're not getting the real uh, fruits of the innovations of things like IT at this moment in time. Great. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Theresa. Theresa. Can you unmute yourself, Therese? Oh, it's me. Sorry. Um, I'm wondering why we aren't better at innovating to anticipate and prevent colossal disasters. And I'm thinking of a range of things from the tsunami of 2004, for instance, when it was said it could have been prevented, the, you know, potentially two spillover pandemics. Great. Okay. Thank you. Short and sweet and uh, very contemporary. Usha, uh, last question from you, please. Thank you. Um, just a couple of very quick um, questions slash comments slash observations. One is, um, um, I was wondering about the linkages between innovation and uh, the the state of market mechanisms quite often we find because i'm interested in the in looking at the diffusion and the commercialization of innovation quite often we find that in developed economies where market structures are relatively mature and robust are actually inimical to innovation compared to developing economies where market structures are relatively nascent who show far more nimbleness and adaptability and resourcefulness in uh, in the uptake of innovation. The second uh, related point is whether when we talk about innovation, we tend to overprivilege high-tech innovation and somewhat overlook low-tech, low-cost innovation. Thank you. Great, uh, thank you. Um, Matt, you can't possibly hope to respond to all of that, but um, see, see, see how you go, pick what you want to respond to. Muted. Now you can hear me. Thank you very much indeed. All really interesting points. Um, uh, one theme that several of you brought up, and therefore I can sort of deal with it in, in one go, is this question of uh, innovation in atoms versus electrons, if you like, you know, in the real world versus the digital world, um, uh, and how, how much we are doing high-tech digital innovation um, partly because we made it so difficult to do real practical um, uh, on the ground innovation. Um, uh, and, and I think this is a, a huge issue that we, we that the country that can crack this and can get back to innovation in materials in construction, which was mentioned, uh, and so on. Um, so much the better. I mean, the, there has been a lot of interesting innovation in construction, for example, um, off-site manufacturing, um, uh, all sorts. I mean, I'm told that two of the crossrail stations were built, one in an old way and one in a new way, and one came in half the price of the other, etc. So stuff is happening. But I quite agree with you. It's, it's ridiculous how we uh, haven't managed to bring down the price of housing and other things. And it's, it, a lot of that comes back to the planning system uh, in this country. Um, uh, and we, you know, we can find ways uh, to, to do that. Um, Paul made the point about how standardization and simple low-tech things can make a huge difference uh, if they allow flow through the economy. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I have a, a, a section in the book where I describe the, development, the invention of containerization uh, in shipping. 
really important story. Uh, this guy, Malcolm McLean, banging his head against a brick wall for years to, to get this revolution going. Um, unbelievable difference in the cost of shipping goods overseas uh, and uh, therefore a far bigger boost to world trade than anything that happened at GATT or the WTO, uh, as it were. Um, uh, um, Alistair Freeman talked about um, blue sky thinking. Um, yeah, really important. Um, I do have some some thoughts on that. I, I won't go into to that. Um, Daniel's point about why are so many against uh, innovation? And to some extent, what we're experiencing is a failure of the imagination. If, if we're nowadays encouraged to think through every innovation before it arrives. In the old days, it just arrived and we had no choice in the matter. And it was either a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, you know, whether it's a nuclear weapon or a, a mobile phone, it just gets dumped on us and we decide whether we like it or not. Um, whereas nowadays we're, we're encouraged to have a huge debate about whether or not this is a good thing. And of course, when you have that debate, you think of all the things that might go wrong. You think in terms of the precautionary principle. You think of all the possible disadvantages. You don't think of how the mobile phone is going to transform the life of a poor, unemployed African person, which it has. Um, you think, oh, this is a toy for the rich, for example, which it to a large extent, wasn't to a surprising extent. Um, so somehow it's the process of, of, of looking ahead where we are weighing up all the cons and we're not talking about the pros of, of a future technology. Um, um, both Alistair and Nico asked me about what I would recommend for policy, and I have been on calls with Alok Sharma um, to talk about this. And the thing I say again and again, and I bang on about, and this actually comes to uh, Therese's point about preparedness for disasters too, is the one thing I would like to wave a magic wand and change is speed of decision-making by regulators. It's not that regulators say no. They never did say no to fracking. They never did say no to genetic modified organisms. But they took such a long time to say yes that the industries had got up and left and said, it's no good, I can't do anything in Europe. Uh, we're going to try somewhere else. Uh, and that, and it's if if you and I come back again to this point that if you invent a new DNA diagnostic test to test for vac for viruses, at a you know point of care, quick, cheap, and rare, you could have done that five years ago. Why haven't we got these? Because it takes three, four, five years to get approval for approval for a new medical regulatory device, uh, medical device. Now in the pandemic, whoa, we've been wafting these things through in a week. Or a day, new ventilator, no problem. Three days to approve it. Well, if we can do it in a pandemic, why on earth can't we do it in peacetime, as it were? Um, and that's, um, uh, so I think that's the big, big theme that I would sort of end on. Um, I haven't answered everybody's points. I haven't got back to Dominic about empires. Um, yes, some empires can invent some things, um, but on the whole, uh, they're pretty bad, considering how rich they are, how populous they are. Empires have a pretty poor track record. There are more things invented in the Dark Ages than there were in the Roman Empire. Yes, they invented plumbing and all that stuff. But think, you know, th they depended hugely on slave labor. And as a result, they just didn't invest in labor-saving technology or machines to anything like this they could have done. Um, 
um, I love the point Osha made about developing companies can be more nimble in leapfrogging into new technologies. Look at the, um, the whole story of um, uh, uh, mobile phone money that, you know, took off in Kenya, for example, before other, I can't remember the name of the, the firm, but it's, uh, it's well known. I'll stop there. We've covered a lot of ground. It's been huge fun. Thank you very, very much. And I, I wish I'd had this conversation before I wrote the book because I'd have <laughs> written a better book. Uh, thank you very much. As Jenny said earlier, Matt, that was a tour de force.